Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Thank you so much to all of the supporters of this show. People who supported by sending the links on to people they know it could benefit. And also people who tell me that they are binging this show and are hoping to be able to get through as many episodes as possible to sort of catch up because they just found out about it. It's all very exciting and wonderful, and I'm so glad that it's been helpful and supportive and has helped people get advice as they've needed it or some insight or just being able to feel understood and to know that they're not alone. There are people who have decided to become Patreon subscribers for any amount that they can afford. I want to make sure to do a special shout out to the people who give $10 or more a month. To Catherine, Marlene, Muriel, Jamila, Joseph, Catherine, Kikesi, Ilsa, Lynn, Julia, Trimian, Elizabeth, Sheila, Holly, Tammy, David, Apostababe, Donna, Jessica, Mislav, Zofia, Kathy, Audrey, Alex, Ken, Katrina, Christina, Brianna, Ludwig, Scott, Peter, Linda, Jolie, Paul, and Paula, Camus, Lillian, and Maureen. I could not do this without you. Thank you, thank you, thank you so very much. I'm very happy to have Daniel Ice back on the show. He had previously come on the show to talk about fraud as a business model and now is going to be talking a little bit more about belief and religion than he was able to get into during the last time that we had our episode. And also, you'll hear that at the end of the episode today, we're talking about doing a third episode about a different subject. What I really like about Daniel is his wealth of information and also that I always learn new things when I speak with him. And I know that you are going to benefit from hearing his take on things in a new and unique way. He's an entrepreneur and was raised inside a quite tightly knit church. His journey into understanding the nature of religion started when he was excommunicated from his church for exposing sexual abuse. This has led him to ask the hard questions around his most deeply held beliefs, and he's found healing through conversations around faith and abuse. He shares very personal stories with the hope that it will help others to find strength and healing. So here again is Daniel Ice. So I want to welcome Daniel Ice back to the show. 
when we were first talking about you being on, I had these kind of thoughts about things that I'd like you to cover. And then you introduced other ideas to me. We kind of went back and forth. And even though for some people, they do a whole conversation with me and it's part one and part two or episode one, episode two, this is two separate things that I'm sure will converge at different points, but they're two different subjects by the same person. Because you, I think, have so much information and so much knowledge in so many different areas that it's not the same chapter. It's the next chapter, but in the same book. So Daniel, you want to introduce yourself to people? My name is Daniel Ice. I live in Los Angeles, California. You know, I grew up, um, you know, very conservative Christian. I went to Christian school K through 12 and college. You know, I very much believed in you know, a literal Bible, literal creation, the earth was 6,000 years old, God made it in seven 24-hour days, or six, and he rested on the seventh, and um, integrated that kind of thinking into every aspect of my life. Okay, so we're going to get more into that today, and I'm very happy to talk to you about it. First of all, what happened after you did your initial episode about fraud? A lot of people wrote to me saying that it really helped them develop the language to understand what had happened Mm. and why they felt so manipulated and also why it felt like this very slick presentation and that everyone, at least on the board of whatever group they were in, sort of was in the know about this, but that the people coming in didn't realize it was sort of this well-oiled machine of manipulation and that they were being lied to. And the lying, of course, is a very difficult part of all of it. But for some people, they have an easier time knowing that the people who controlled them really believed in what they were saying and then finding out that some people really were aware that there was fraud and Either they had an ends justify the means philosophy, or they just didn't even care. They just wanted to get away with things. So there's a whole variety of different ways that people approach this and experience it. And people were very moved by it and could see it also in companies that they dealt with, uh, as mm-hmm. well as organizations that they were involved with and multi-level marketing and a lot of it. So it spoke to a lot of people. So I thank you for that. Well, thank you. I I really appreciate the feedback. It's really interesting. You you said that a lot. It gave a lot of people language because you know I'm I'm an entrepreneur and I work in technology and I work in what's called product development. I'm really a product visionary, and my whole job every day is to think of words that make sense for all the technology. I really view my happy place as surfing on the edge of knowledge between knowledge and mystery. And in pulling words out of mystery, out of the fog, and creating them into into systems in order. And so I, I'm I I remain an integrated person. I, I mentioned earlier that I'd integrated the Bible into all aspects of my life. I integrated it because I'm an integrated person. And and so I don't know how to not be integrated. And and so the fact that I do this in my day job, and then we have these more personal conversations, it's it's reaffirming to me. So thank you. You're welcome. I am really excited to talk to you today about the subject that you brought up and we'll come back to it. I found when we were initially talking 
And also when I would hear some conversations you'd have with other people, there were the questions of, well, what about carbon dating? And what about archaeology? And what about this? What about, how, how do you still hold on to the biblical interpretation of creationism, et cetera, while having all this other evidence? And the fascinating part for me was that that was all part of it, that that was all taken into consideration, and it still came back to the Bible somehow. So mm-hmm. I would love to find out how that happens. And also, if you can give some examples of that kind of thinking that I, it's not just circular, it's kind of, it's really is fascinating to find the causal relationship that people wouldn't necessarily see as a causal relationship. Yeah, I think the first misconception most people have when they hear creationism is they they think of the internet meme of Jesus riding on a raptor. And I know that may sound very sacrilege. And my perspective on religion now is I'm really okay with with everybody believing whatever they believe. I'm not here to convince anybody. I'm just here to tell the world about my point of view. And if it resonates with you, that's great. And if it doesn't, that's fine too. I really am trying to be neutral, which was not a position that I was allowed to hold inside of Christianity. And so I think as I, as I get into conversations of metaphysics and ideology, I think you have to start from a place of I'm okay and you're okay. When we start with a place of I'm right and you're wrong, things can get out of hand. Because if somebody's right and somebody else is wrong, and there are rights and wrongs, don't don't get me wrong, but if people have to be right and wrong, then people will justify a lot of things. Take this last election cycle, both sides did outrageous things uh, because they had the right candidate. So who cares if we shave off the edge here and there, but, but it does because when you shave off the edge of yourself, uh, your integrity, your your character, it, it does impact you, even if the ends, quote unquote, justify the means. It doesn't respect yourself as a person with your dignity. But getting into creationism, the first thing you have to understand is it's not illogical. It is alternatively logical. And, and I'm not trying to be clever here. It just simply starts with a different basis of construction. One of the interesting things that most people don't understand and was taught to me by a very smart MIT educated creation scientist is, you know, there there are over 50 kinds of geometry out there. And for the longest time, we only knew, we know about Euclidean geometry. That's what you learn in high school, right? The triangles and the angles and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, And Euclidean geometry is built on 10 core principles and nine of the 10 can be proven 100% of the time. And the 10th is that two parallel lines never meet. And that's only true if it's uh, on a flat space. But when we started going to the moon and we started getting into space travel, we found out that two parallel lines here on the, on the equator, when you go east to west, right, imagine a sphere, they stay parallel. But when you go north to south, they curve and they touch, right? So you can think mm-hmm. about they're parallel at the equator. And so the adding the addition of three space broke that logical system. And so what's happening with our knowledge and our problem-solving skills as humanity as a whole is we started not understanding the underlying things. And as more dimensionality to reality unfolds, and I'm not talking about like fourth and fifth dimensions, just as we start to understand, oh, there people don't get sick because of spirits, it's because of germs. You know, physics works this way. Physics worked for a long time under Newtonian physics, 
but then when we moved into outside of the earth and as you approach the speed of light, you need Einstein's general relativity. And, and so you, you have this kind of internal logic that happens. And then, and then I think what happens is you, you have documents that get filtered through a second key idea, which is literalism, which is we can read the documents and we approach them literally. And they're amateur, not, I don't want to say amateur because that, that sounds demeaning, but I, I will say amateur or beginner critiques of literalism where they'll say like, well, they'll point out some random verse about, you know, menstruation and Deuteronomy or, or Leviticus. And they'll say like, oh, you're not supposed to talk to a woman during menstruation. And can you imagine society if it was that way and stuff like that? They have ways of remaining literal. They say Jesus came and fulfilled the law. And, you know, so those were literally times there and stuff like that. So there is a logic to the literalism. It's not what they would say as a plain and wooden literalism. It's not that every word has no meaning. They they believe in the concepts of poetry. You know, they would say that Song of Solomon is both literal and allegorical. You know, it's, it's, it's the literal marriage of Solomon to one woman. It's the allegorical aspect of being in love, right? Your hair is like a flock of goats cascading down Mount Gilead. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, good writing in the time didn't really stand the test of time. But mm-hmm. um, no. but no. but I have I have been to Mount Gilead and I have seen the goats and, and I have been to Israel and spent a lot of time there uh, when I was mm-hmm. when I graduated college. And and it is a beautiful site. And I understand the, the metaphor there. And, and so there's a lot of richness to the text. And I think that's why they stand the test of time. That's why that's why we keep going back to them. But the, the problem is that what, what really happened is the, the literalism came in uh, as a byproduct of the Protestant Reformation. So the Catholic Church had largely moved an allegorical interpretation. And because the Catholic Church, in a lot of ways, was that gatekeeper that I kind of talked about in the fraud episode, where yeah. the, the Catholic Church was the gatekeeper to God. The priest was the gatekeeper to God. Mm-hmm. And the Protestant Reformation was really, there is no gatekeeper to God you cannot talk directly with God. Okay. And, and I think that's a beautiful concept that, that we don't need these gatekeepers in life. And when we think about systems of abuse, be it Hollywood or the church, there are always gatekeepers involved. One can keep your soul. The other can, you know, upend or grant, you know, Harvey Weinstein grant your acting career. Or, you mm-hmm. know, there, there are countless women that came forward that could have been stars. And everybody's like, well, who's that? Nobody cares because their their careers were killed because they, they stood up for themselves and they didn't succumb to molestation. And so the Protestant Reformation, that idea has then been as, as let's remove a gatekeeper. If we take that as the core fuel behind the Protestant Reformation and the way that he got to removing the gatekeepers was by taking a more literal view of the Bible. And so Mm -hmm. then that literalism was then reapplied to other areas. And I have one very dear friend who I love, and he always talked about the proto-eschaton, and so that's a big word, and proto mm-hmm. being begin and eschaton mm-hmm. being end. And so the Bible is is quite interesting when it comes to Genesis and Revelation. So proto being Genesis and eschaton being Revelation. And so a lot of the reformers took Genesis to be literal. And mm-hmm. so that kind of developed a literal tradition there. And I'm not a church history guy. I'm just a programmer. I was raised by a church history theologian. This is my perspective as being a well-educated clergy person. But uh, And then the dispensationalists came around and took the book of Revelation literally as well. And the two books tend to talk about each other in a literal way about each other. 
and and there's a lot of like as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the end of time. That's Matthew 24. So mm -hmm. there are a lot of like textual reasons to develop this point of view. And so when data would come in, you you laid the foundation, and this is what's called presuppositional apologetics. Uh, everybody has a set of presuppositions. And so everybody's always operating from presuppositions. And they simply presuppose that the Bible was true. And and then they would build, and then and then when the data came in, it would have to be filtered through a biblical lens. And so if science said that, I don't know, we're a million years old or billions or, or whatever, whatever science says, right? The the earth is whatever number. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think four point three billion is the latest estimate. They would say, no, we're 6,000. And then they would they would say, you know, God could have made the earth to look old when you talk about carbon dating, right? And then what developed was really in the 20s, you had the, the schism in the American church between conservative and liberal. You had the, the great rise of the liberal church. And Machen preached the famous sermon, which was covered, I think, by the New York Times because the church was the center of culture. And it was, mm -hmm. shall the fundamentalists win? And so where does this term fundamentalism come from? Fundamentalism comes from another guy, and I forget his name, but he wrote what were called the fundamentals. And it was a series of pamphlets, and he mailed them to every pastor in the States. And if you agreed with those fundamentals, then you were called a fundamentalist, right? And that's where the term fundamentalism comes from. And so the church kind of split between the fundamentalist and the, the liberal view. And the liberal view was an attempt to reconcile modern science with the Bible. Because modern science is always in the process of sciencing, liberal interpretations also move with the times, right? Mm -hmm. So if science says this, then we go back and look at the Bible and say, oh no, the Bible is really saying this. And then science learns something new and we reinterpret the Bible through science. And over time, what happened is uh, Billy Graham kind of was went to Bob Jones University, was and Bob Jones University was one of the heart of fundamentalism and rejected fundamentalism, but he also rejected liberalism. And he developed okay. the evangelical movement as a result of that. And there was a groundbreaking book that basically presented a scientific argument for a cataclysm, The Genesis Flood by Morrison Whitcomb. I met the author of the book one time, very loving man. He loved everybody. He was a scientist. He, Whitcomb was the theologian and Morse was the scientist. That book really created the modern creationist movement. And they took the Genesis flood literal. They did all the calculations to prove all the all the animals could fit on the ark. They mm -hmm. they did the engineering to show that the ark is actually the dimensions in the Bible versus other myths. It's a seafaring vessel. The, the people have done computer simulations to show that it works. So in the same way that like when we look at the pyramids and say, how could people move these stones? And then modern people will go back and say, well, if they use this kind of ramp system or like whatever, right, they go back and, and kind of figure out how the pyramids, which we, we can all agree the pyramids exist, they're there. We don't know how they got there. We don't know who built them. I don't think it's aliens or anything like that, I think. But archaeology doesn't really come to a consensus on that point. And so because history is a series of counter to the counter to the counter to the counter. So as a response to the creationism, which started to gain some momentum, you had a very strong push of uniformitarianism come out of the evolutionary side of the world, the non-Christian evolutionary side. And the principle of uniformitarianism, and I may not be saying that right, it's a hard word to say, uh, says that basically things, the current process is how 
is how things have always gone. And so if we if we watch erosion happen now and we see that, oh, the sea erodes at this pace, and if we we kind of rewind history backwards and, and we assume that everything happened, you know, linearly and over time, and there's a there's a large discounting of cataclysm. What's really happened to me since uh, since I've left a literal creationist view of the Bible is I have found a group of rogue archaeologists and people that are are exploring the cataclysmic history and have dated some possible meteor or comet strikes to around 12,000 years ago. And those ended an ice age that when they hit, they hit over Greenland and they melted so much water that they did create these massive floods and probably wiped out a lot of the advanced civilization. And so what creationism did is it went and looked, it went and looked for cracks and it found a lot of cracks because there are a lot of cracks there because that's how history and science work. They start with a lot of cracks and over time data develops and then arguments kind of, you know, get mounted. And then over time, there'll be a new archaeologically find. And like there's Gobeke Tepe. I can't say that right. It's in Turkey. And it's it's around uh, 1200 years ago. And what I really think happened is there was a cataclysm there was a more advanced human species and the people that survived it were the hunter gatherers. And mm-hmm. some of these advanced people came to hunter gatherers and imagine if a very large comet hit and wiped out most of humanity now and a handful of people went down into a bunker, survived, they came back up and all the only people they could find were, we still have hunter gatherers today, right? And the Amazon, mm-hmm. In, in um, Australia, the, the Aborigines, you know, some, some parts of Africa, right? There are still some hunter-gatherer people. Those people are probably going to survive the collapse of civilization, assuming the earth doesn't get toxic because of like volcanoes or, or some, something like that, assuming the earth supports life. But a large part of society would collapse. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm starting to see through all this is there probably was some of these people survived. They went and found the hunter-gatherers. To them, they must have appeared like gods because they had a very good understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, the pyramids are, are amazingly astrologically aligned. They show a deep understanding of the earth that we have only fully understood in the past you know, 50 years. Think about 100 years ago, we were doing horse and buggy. 50 years ago, we finally made it to the moon. And now, mm-hmm. and now here we are. Imagine we're going to be another 100 years and then imagine mm-hmm. a comet hitting. And so... History is a lot more complex and a lot more misunderstood than than mm-hmm. we think. And so when you combine all of this with religious tradition and the desire mm-hmm. for people to remain in the faith, I think you overlay the other major cultural force of the 60s with the rise of the, the counterculture, the psychedelic movement. People really started to think differently about the world, the pace of technology. And I think then you go to Joseph Campbell. Mm-hmm. who developed what he called the monomyth or the, the hero's journey. Okay. And this is the archetypal myth that seems to emerge out of all mm-hmm. of our mythology. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, George Lucas famously repackaged it into Star Wars. And, and so Star Wars was a future ancient uh, retelling of the hero's journey. And so the reason that Star Wars works and, and in many ways is, is fast becoming the consensus view of religion is because it's the only myth that's been able to, to keep up with technology. And so mm-hmm. as 
as re- religion has always adapted around our technology and understanding of the world, but as that pace of technology accelerated faster and faster to under a human's lifespan, the ability for the myth to be adapted to the cultural context, they got disconnected. And, and so like, like over time, you know, we see the development because technology used to develop very slowly and, and it wouldn't change much over people's lifetimes. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, again, my, my, my dear grandmother passed away in 2020, but she was born in, she was almost a hundred years old. She was 99. And I mean, think about the, the difference of 99 years ago from now, you know, she, mm-hmm. she rode a horse to school and lived through the depression, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and now there's no way she could understand an iPhone, but if she was born today, she could, because yeah. so much mm-hmm. of our, our technology understanding is rooted in our upbringing. And so mm-hmm. when religion broke away from, uh, and religion primarily functions as a sense-making apparatus. So it makes sense of the world for us. And, mm-hmm. and when it failed to do that job, people who wanted to preserve the religion of, of faith, and I'm not, I'm not talking about manipulation here, I'm talking about true faith, they came in and tried to retrofit the Christian faith for a scientific world. So then, and this part may be very offensive to people, and, and I, I mean no offense, but a lot of the more modern religions take Scientology, take Mormonism we watch them evolve in a much mm-hmm. more historically observable time, right? Mm-hmm. We, we know a lot more about the founding of Mormonism than we do mm-hmm. Abraham. Like Abraham, we have a couple of chapters in the book of Genesis, right? Joseph Smith, there's a lot of stuff about that guy. Right. Like, right. like and, and so we watch the Mormon camp react to, because Joseph Smith clearly made up the book of Mormon. The golden tablets were never found you know, all, all of those things. And we've watched an entire school. Like I was always taught that the uh, Brigham University has one of the best archaeology departments because they were so convinced of the literalness of Joseph Smith's visions that they went mm. back and tried to find it. And of course, they, they really haven't found any, any archaeological evidence to support it. And I don't think that the Book of Mormon and the Bible are, are on the same historical level. I, w- I want to be clear on that point. I think the Bible mm-hmm. has a lot more there's definitely been a lot more archaeological validation of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And, but I think what we saw was we saw the impact of literalism on a modern mind. And I guess it took me this entire 35 minutes here to get to that statement. But what is the impact of the literalization of myth on the modern mind when it's crowded out by the space of the scientific method? And, and I think the answer is creationism. And so to think that people are illogical or narrow-minded or rubes or all of these other things, it, it's to discount them as people. And I see this as the fundamental disconnect between red and blue states right now. I don't have any comment on my political party. I just, I, I grieve the division because we, we all literally live in the same land. And we just simply have different sense-making apparatuses. And part of it is because we, we live in very different contexts. I always say America is great because we have we both have Alabama and New York City. And um, the more that you try to centralize things, the more that you're going to cut off, you end up with a bed of procresis. And, and so if we go back to the mythology and we let the mythology teach us 
the truth without focusing on the literalness, mythology becomes very rich. And so the mm-hmm. bed of Procresis was a myth about a guy who would have you into his house and he'd let you sleep on his bed. And if you fit, great. But if you were too sh- tall, like me, I'm 6'4", and he'd start chopping things off until you fit the bed. If you were too mm-hmm. short, you'd be stretched into the bed. And so that I think in many ways describes many people's experience with their day-to-day life. They're in a mm-hmm. job that is chopping them off. They're in a religion that doesn't um, allow them to be themselves. They're in relationships that are false. We also don't have the tools we need to find out who we really are. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But, you know, I've been able to find out who I am through meditation, therapy. And what happens is most people in order, I think, to make progress in the modern world, you have to be able to hold paradoxical positions. Yeah. And, and this is just a part of like growing up and, and maturing, right? Our brains start in a very literal mode. Mm-hmm. And then we, we start moving towards a, a more dynamic filter. Right. More of a both and, and. A both and, yep. And, you know, it becomes, it, it's called, it depends, right? Mm. And uh, like, like, mm-hmm. like we always say, well, it depends. And right. So I'm, I'm an expert software developer and I've been doing it for 20 years. And, you know, somebody will come ask me a real, a, a question and then I'll say, well, it just really depends. And nobody wants to hear that answer. <laughs> no, and, and so, so now, <laughs> so now I've gotten to be an expert at answering people's questions and I have to gauge the person asking the question, do they want an answer so they can go mm-hmm. execute or, or are they here to ponder like the meaning of something or, or, or mm-hmm. you, you know, like, like you have to understand why people are doing that. And so, so many people are getting so many different things out of what they're doing. The only way to find out why somebody's interfacing with these things is to ask questions. And, to, and so that, that I bring out of meditation, which is the practice of being curious. Because when we're curious, we we have the opportunity to learn. And a lot of our suffering and pain comes from comes from a rigid view of being unwilling to accept the reality of the world. And so we we hold on to what we think is correct. And we hold on to that opinion of who that person is in spite of the face of the evidence. Good and bad. Um yeah. The, yeah. the, the, like like all of these statements are 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 neutral they're they're more observational so that i know is a very long answer to what is creationism i guess to go back and to recap my answer is you know i think that we we have a lot of historical data that can mm-hmm. be looked at through a lot of lenses we mm-hmm. we have movements that evolve and those movements create castles and defenses and a lot of times, because the other side has taken up one of these things, like there's a cataclysmic flood, evolution will now discount any concept mm-hmm. of a cataclysmic flood. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But but just because there's, because they don't want to give the creationist an inch. And so both sides are now unable to find the real truth because both sides are so dug in. The creationist won't give the evolutionist any movement where they see mm-hmm. the Bible being literal. The evolutionists won't give their side any movement where there is unexplained cataclysm. So neither side make progress. 
And the truth mm-hmm. lies in the middle. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying that we're, we're in a Hegelian dialectic where we have to do synthesis and, synthesis and all this kind of stuff. I'm saying that, that then defenses get mounted. And then a lot of times it's about, nobody has a conversation about the core issues anymore. They, they have conversations attempting to knock over the other person's castle. Yeah. 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 So that then reminds every, me of the political climate over the last few months. Uh, last exactly. Few years, actually. Yeah. Exactly. Like, let's take the problem of COVID, right? Mm-hmm. And and here, here I am, I'm going to pontificate about something that I probably shouldn't, but um, <laughs> go, go for it. But how many people, how many people are, are upset that the vaccine came out while Trump was still in office? And, and it doesn't really matter if he's in office or not. Right. There's the opportunity for people to receive healing. And at the same time, how many people are going to take the vaccine that if it had come out under Biden, wouldn't take the vaccine because of some conspiracy. And so what I think is happening is because we're, we're in these fortified castles, conspiracy theories start to explain the unexplainable. And because people know that they're, they're not on truth. So this is why QAnon makes sense. QAnon is this crazy theory that there's a pedophile ring of Satanists and Donald mm-hmm. Trump is like somehow fighting them. That's my high level synopsis. But the fact is that we we had a pedophile ring run by Jeffrey Epstein and the guy got killed. And, and who knows? Who knows if we'll ever know the truth there? We, we have mm-hmm. rampant sexual abuse with Harvey Weinstein mm-hmm. and the church. It's it, th- These are verifiable facts. And yeah. those conversations don't get had. So the conspiracies come in to make sense. And and they're mm-hmm. they're the they're the mythology to make sense of a world that they can't understand because we can't have honest conversations. Wow. Okay. Okay. Oh my goodness. I have a feeling people are going to write to me and say, "Please have Daniel on again because there's more to talk about with all of these subjects." So, a couple things. You know, it's interesting when we think about when you were talking about the pyramids, etc. I mean, there there are places all over the world where they're, you know, uncovering monuments and tombs and this um, Neolithic period tomb, I think from 3200 BC called Newgrange. That's not the Irish name for it, but it's in Ireland in County Meath. I don't travel nearly as much as I would like to, but I happen to have gone there. (laughs) And so the entrance is aligned with the rising sun on the winter solstice. And it's the sunlight shines through the whole, it floods the inner chamber. And that is so powerful to think about that. And you were talking about being aligned with, you know, the sun and the stars, et cetera. But there are places that existed before and in other places than the places talked about in the Bible. And so it just shows, I think, that there has been a need and there has been the gift that people have had with whatever tools they had at the time to create these things that actually are still standing, which is quite amazing. I think that it, so it sort of broadens the view, makes it more about the rest of the world, which you don't hear about in the Bible. What I I think is also important when we talk about the Noah story, et cetera, there are issues around translation that Mm -hmm. are a problem for people who want the Bible to be the word of God because we know there have been issues with translation. And we also Mm -hmm. know that sometimes things might be overly dramatized because they make a better story. And who knows if that is 
that's true in the Bible or not, but I would assume so if I were to be telling a grand story, one that I'd want it to have be remembered, I would take from some kind of kernel and maybe make it more grand. And I'm thinking about Moses, you know, splitting the Red Sea so that the slaves couldn't go towards freedom. And so there have been some recent people who um, have said, you know, it could be that it was also that it was low tide and the Red Sea is sometimes also know, known as the Sea of Reeds. And mm-hmm. so it could be that it w- that reed was changed to red. Who knows? And so it's not as exciting to hear that the people leaving hundreds and hundreds of years of slavery just walked across when it was low tide. You know, that doesn't that doesn't make for a good movie scene. But at the same time, I think it's important to know that some of the words are going to be shifted and mistranslated. And oh, it's reminding me also of this idea that, you know, it has been the source of a lot of anti-Semitism for so long, that the, the idea of Jews having horns and that that came mm-hmm. from a mistranslation where Moses came down the mountain and was seen as radiant because he had spoken with God and he had these rays of light. And the Hebrew word for ray or, or being radiant sounds like the word for horns. So it's Karan, Karen, Karnaim, Karanim, like they're all, they all sound alike. And so two of those were um, singular to plural. And so I, I guess my, my question for you is with people who want it to be the word of God, but they don't, they can't study the Bible in the original, whatever it is, cuneiform or whatever it came in. How do they know? How do they know that this is the word of God? Yeah, I mean, that was something I had a hard time with. I, I attempted to learn Greek as well. Languages are a weakness of mine. Um, I have a very hard time with phonics and spelling. Uh, I understand things and I'm a very auditory person. But so I have personal limitations on approaching those texts. I, I think we're always going to have personal limitations when it comes in our quest for truth. And even the people that understand the Greek and Hebrew are going to argue at infinitum. They're scholars and, and they argue at infinitum. The question is, is truth calculatable to the ninth decimal place or is truth more directional? Like, do you have to be going actually north? Or when I say go north, do I mean, you know, kind of kind of head up the five, right? Is the five, the five is a north to south highway in, in California. Mm-hmm. And in overall, it's north to south, but I'm sure there are times where it's a little bit east. There are times where it's a little bit west. And so I'll get really personal here. I, uh, I'm trying to lose 65 pounds right now. And so it's, we're starting this, this is January 4th uh, that we're doing this recording. And so I created a spreadsheet and I said, it, if I lose a pound a week, uh, a pound and a quarter a week, which is a healthy weight to lose, it will take me 364 days. If I lose, if I want to lose it in a hundred days, I kind of have a hundred day challenge I'm working on. I have to lose 4.6 pounds a week, which is, which is not healthy and it's not realistic. But, but having that spreadsheet all of a sudden, I feel a lot more control than I really feel. But the truth of my diet is going to be played out, not by a spreadsheet that I made one time, but in every single meal that I partake over the next year. And so I think that's my answer to Bible translation is a lot of times the ability to translate it out of the original language, it feels like that spreadsheet where I punched in 1.25 pounds, which is a very reasonable amount of weight to lose. Mm -hmm. But that means 
that I'm going to have 365 days where I have to consume a certain number of calories. That's a much bigger statement. And it's a much bigger act to live. And so I guess in some ways, I kind of, I kind of think that the problem with a tool is a tool gives us a false sense of power and understanding. And, and, and speaking of the flood myth, almost all the flood myths say that the ancients were wiped out because of some sort of, you know, in the Bible, they were the wicked, they were wicked. Uh, you know, a lot of people think Atlantis is the Greek version of that mythology with Plato mm-hmm. saying they're wiped out for their hubris because hubris was the key sin of, of Greek thought. You know, it was kind of their, their big no, no, you know, we say that we're going to be wiped out because of global warming, because the environment is, is, is a very high and important thing to us right now. So we always have this kind of like existential check on ourselves. Mm -hmm. And, and I see when, when you start to see things as mythological and you start to understand, I think that in the mythology is, is a deeper, but less exact truth. Mm. And, and, and that, that's where I go with the problem of translation. A lot of times I, I found myself falling into that in Christianity, either I would be impersonal with people in my pursuit of technical accuracy. And in every time I felt like the more that I live the spirit of love your neighbor as yourself, the harder it is to remain literal. Oh, interesting. Okay. I, I feel like those are two. And I understand, I know, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are still in the faith that would not see the paradox there, but we're dealing with, we're dealing with an overall large scale shift mm-hmm. of economics. Like, like people talk about the generation gap. People mm-hmm. don't understand like the difficulty that the millennials are under financially. And this is like geopolitics and trade theory and all this kind of stuff. But people ask, why are the millennials leaving the church? It's because the construct of myth-making and the tools for how to live life don't work. Mm -hmm. I did everything in my power to follow those things. Everything still broke for me. And it wasn't for lack of trying. And and I even tried to trust God more. Like like the thing that I tried the most was, was more and more faith. That's one of those signals that you're using technology that's really broken Yeah. when they blame the, the user, right? Mm-hmm. We all hate, we all hate the tech guy that tells us like, like, Oh, you're using it wrong. You got to mm-hmm. do like 19 things or whatever. Well, maybe, maybe it's the wrong tool for you because like, like for me, I'm an iOS Apple guy. I've used Mac since 1989 and, and, and it works with my brain. And, and I had a couple mm-hmm. of years where I had to program on a PC for my day job. It, it was really hard on me. And, and I know this sounds really dumb, but I try to talk about more normal and relatable things so that people can feel like the disconnect of like when, when the tools they're using don't line up with who they are, right? Mm-hmm. And fortunately, software development is, a lot of people use Macs now for that. And, and mm-hmm. I was able to go back to my Mac and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But other people, their brains work like Android and, and, mm-hmm. and Windows, right? I was a Mac zealot. <laughs> I I was the only guy in my computer science program with a Mac. I was always a little different. And I and I really achieved peace when I was like, you know what? They want to use a different tool. That's great. That's yeah. great. I'm okay and you're okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But it is hard to shift 
what you're doing and shift your brain in that way. Um, but I, I know we need to finish Wind up, down, but yeah. I, I, you know, your, your statement about doing for others and you know, there being this sort of break tension and tension. Right. I mean, I, I think it's reminding me of a story I remember hearing Rabbi Hillel who lived, you know, a long time ago um, when he had a student who was kind of in a hurry uh, and said, you know, like, come on, come on, come on, just tell me what the whole Torah, what the whole Bible is about. I mean, I'm paraphrasing because I wasn't there. But um, he says, basically, like, do not do unto others as you would not have them do unto you. And all the rest is commentary. I like that, even though I do think there's value in learning, if it's, if, especially if it's important to you and it connects you with a community and with meaning and with kind of learning lessons. Um, some that you want to um, use as a guide for how to live your life or how to not live your life. And at the same time, there are people who say that there are other things that matter and they're, they're not getting lost in the trees, but they're zooming out and seeing the forest. And so thank you for helping us kind of see both, be able to zoom out, see the forest, but also go in and really look at the trees, see what makes up this forest, and also see how people have interpreted it and made their way through it and around it um, for a very long time, and introducing us also to a lot of great terminology that I hope everyone listening looks up and has a chance to look up. And one of my favorite words that I remember learning years ago that you use, the eschatological way of looking at things, I thought, okay, I do like words. And that was definitely one I looked up. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it has a cool spelling. I want to thank you also for sharing not only what you know in a scholarly way, but also connecting it to you as mm -hmm. a human being and knowing also that there is, in the way that you phrase it, respect for people looking at this in the ways that are meaningful to them and the ways that are in line with their beliefs. And that it's all okay, just like you said. I'm okay, you're okay. So thank you, Daniel, for yeah. everything. And I hope to talk to you again on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. And if I could close out, I go back to 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, right? Because if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And if I understand the gift of prophecy and all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith and can move mountains and have not charity or love, I am nothing. Mm. You know, I think that chapter wrestles with the paradox of the exact, of, of being exactly accurate to, to where you boil the love out of things, right? I, I think in a lot of ways that love is that buffer between mm -hmm the discreteness of us. And so like as individuals, if we don't have love to buffer, we, we grind on each other. Yeah. And, and sometimes the most love you can muster is I'm okay and you're okay. Mm -hmm. And, and then maybe it grows from there, but, and though I have all my goods and to feed the poor and give my body to be burned and don't have love, it doesn't profit me anything. Interestingly enough, I think the message is, is already in the Bible. Beautiful. For part three, we can discuss uh -huh. the breakdown of sense-making with religion mm -hmm. and, and the impact on the culture.
what happens when the major religions that have dominated the world for the bulk of recorded history cease to be able to make sense out of the world? Where does that leave people? Right. Emotionally, spiritually, mm-hmm. societally. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. It's a date. We're doing it. Okay. All right. So you all, you all heard it here first. Uh, <laughs> just when I heard it first too, but I'm excited about it. Okay. So I will then talk to you soon. And thank you. Sounds great. Have a great day. All right. Bye. You too. Be well. One more thing before you go. I'm so happy to have had Daniel Ice back on the show. And you heard it here first. He's going to be on again to talk about the issue that we brought up at, actually, that he brought up at the very end of our conversation. I like the idea. So be prepared for a third episode coming sometime in the near future with Daniel Ice. But I want to be able to talk today about something that he brought up, which is this idea that religion is a sense-making apparatus. There are so many questions that are on our minds on a regular basis, and we get very involved day-to-day in the questions having to do with how, what, where, and when, because those are the questions that help us know what we're supposed to be doing during the day, where we're supposed to be, how we do our jobs, and what we're supposed to be taking care of in that moment and the like. There are people who step back from those questions, though, and think about the question, why? The sense-making question. In fact, we all think about why to varying degrees. Why is sometimes easy to answer and at other times impossible to answer. It's all across the board. Because why questions are sometimes related to things that have yet to be answered. Like why we exist or why we die. You can give practical answers to those questions, but usually the reason for those questions is that people are looking for something greater than just a practical answer. Asking the question why starts very young. And if any of you have ever spent time with a toddler, you will know that a conversation will typically sound like the following. Why do birds have feathers? So they can fly. Well, why do they want to fly? Because that's what they're supposed to do? Well, why? I'm not sure. Well, why? Why what? Why are you not sure? And the why are you not sure part, or why don't you know part of that kind of interaction is actually very important because it's a toddler finding out that there might be a limitation in the kind of mm, omniscience that they see their parents are supposed to have. Those are difficult moments for kids and for parents alike. And those conversations, the why, why, but why, and why, 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 can continue and continue until sometimes usually the subject needs to be changed. But there is something so powerful about asking those questions. And first of all, as we know, when we're dealing with controlling relationships and manipulative environments, asking questions is a luxury. And often questioning is punishable. And it's something people coming out of these situations find difficult, both the questioning part and also not having an absolute answer at the ready as they did while they were in the group. 
sometimes there isn't an answer, and that can be very challenging and anxiety-producing for many, many people. Many former cult members have told me that they enjoyed having the answer to their questions and didn't question if the answer was correct, and it didn't matter. And now that they have the freedom to access other sources of information and collect other data that it's anxiety-producing because they don't know who is right and who is wrong and what answer is right and what answer is wrong, as though for every question there is one right answer, like there was in the cult. They say that asking what and how are functional, but asking why is potentially inspirational, and it creates alignment, connection, a feeling of higher thinking, and the chance for kind of an ethereal, pivotal, and transformational insight. Asking why is usually in an attempt to define a clear path and a purpose. Great salespeople, including cult recruiters, start with why questions from the get-go, introducing you to the importance of asking that question at times and giving you a sense that there's something kind of shallow about the way you've been approaching your life up until this point as evidenced by the fact that you haven't asked yourself those big questions and giving you the impression, of course, that they will have the answers to those questions that they have decided are the most important ones for you to be asking. In these situations where you feel like having the why question prompted is a sales tactic, then it's good to back away and wonder why this person is suddenly needing for you to ask yourself these questions. And usually it's because they can then tell you they have the answers and you can be impressed and want to follow them. So, we are usually raised to accept, to take in information we're given without question, especially when it comes to belief. But it's also true that sometimes as we go through different experiences in our lives, we can come to a place where we push up against and examine long-held beliefs and find that maybe those ideas that we've come to know as fact no longer seem as clear to us, no longer are working for us. And it prompts us to ask questions. And then when you start to ask more questions, you're able to become a better questioner in general because you learn how to formulate a question in a way that gets you closer and closer to the answer you're looking for. This reminds me of a quote by Albert Einstein. He said, If I had an hour to solve a problem and my life depended on the solution, I would spend the first 55 minutes determining the proper question to ask. For once I know the proper question, I could solve the problem in less than five minutes. There's also an interesting little tidbit about Albert Einstein in an exhibit I remember seeing about him where when he would come home from school, supposedly, his mother wouldn't necessarily ask him what he learned, but she would ask him what questions he had asked, which I think is quite amazing. It's calming for all of us when we get answers and when we can make sense of things, when we understand what's happening, when we have the big picture. And religion often offers answers to those questions. It's like it fills in the blanks. It tells people the reason that they exist. It tells people the reason their child died. It tells people why they were given a certain scary diagnosis. It explains to them why they survived the storm when their neighbor perished. It is immeasurably reassuring for most to have a belief system that helps them make sense of a tragedy and helps us all have a way to conceptualize the reason kind of when bad things happen to good people, as grappled with in the book by the same name by Harold Kushner. What I often come back to, though, is 
this idea that there are people in the world who, without hesitation, feel perfectly fine and right and ready and qualified to answer your big questions. But please be cautious about people who have all those answers for you. And remember, there is the possibility there are some questions that have yet to be answered by anybody. There is a reason that they're called existential questions instead of existential answers. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's Radio Public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.